Till I Die by the Beach Boys sounds like nothing else in pop. In a way, it's quite simple. We have the typical Beach Boys wall of vocals. We have some gentle drumming, some vibraphone, organ and bass guitar, and some minimalistic lyrics penned entirely for once by Brian Wilson. All of this pulls together though to make a totally unique song. Those lyrics are, uncharacteristically for the often quite goofy Brian Wilson, profound. They say more in three short verses than most songwriters say in a career. On top of that, it has this baffling chord progression that doesn't really make immediate sense. But I've got myself a hell of a theory, and I think I've solved it. Okay, so you don't really solve chord progressions, but I've read the few alternate takes on the progression that I could find, and I just think mine makes the most sense. Can I got a paper trail to prove it? Check this out. We'll get back to this later. I'm a cork on the ocean. Now the Beach Boys are one of the most famous pop bands of all time. We all know them. They're household name all over America and Europe and I'm sure across a lot of the world. But they saw most, almost all in fact, of their commercial success in a brief period from 1963 to 1966. In this video I'm not going to go into the whole story about their tumultuous rise and fall, but all you need to know is that by the late 60s and into the early 70s, a time period by the way that had some of their best music full stop, they were almost utterly irrelevant to the record buying public in America. Now, they were able to maintain better sales in the UK and the rest of Europe, but still nowhere near their mid-60s peak. This is the general context that Till I Die was written in. Brian Wilson, America's hit maker of Underkind, hadn't actually written a substantial hit in three or four years. I know that doesn't sound like a lot today, but things seemed to move pretty fast in the 60s. Given this immediate context of declining record sales, as well as Brian's prodigious drug use and well-known mental problems, well, it's no surprise that he was inclined towards a little bit of morose existentialism at the time. Around this time, Brian Wilson was actually hospitalised for mental health reasons, and he'd recently told his friends that he wanted to drive off the Santa Monica Pier. He'd even asked his gardener to dig him a grave. Jesus. Anyway, Till I Die was first written and brought to the rest of the band in late 1969. There even exists, to this day, a short piano demo dated to that time. Very bare-bones stuff, but it shows the basic chord structure of what was to become one of their most haunting tunes. On first listen, the band really liked the song, with one unsurprising exception. All Mike Love objected to some of the lyrics as too much of a downer. So Brian went away absolutely crushed by this negative reaction and he reworked some of the lyrics. The band all agreed that these changed lyrics didn't work quite as well. So they reverted back to the original lyrics and the song saw its eventual release on Surf's Up in August 1971. Till I Die was also used as the B-side to Long Promised Road, another brilliant Beach Boys track, this time written by Carl Wilson. Unfortunately though, neither the album nor this single helped reverse the band's descent into early 1970s irrelevancy, in spite of slightly improved album sales compared to the previous year's Sunflower. Honestly, these guys just could not catch a break. Surf's Up is a really good album and it just didn't really do that well at all. All. Sunflower is also great, possibly better, and you know what, the album straight after Surf's Up, Carl and the Passions is, in spite of having quite a boring name, also really good. 1973's Holland is excellent too, but no one seemed interested at the time, and that's a real shame.
As I said before, Till I Die has some really effective lyrics and all three verses take the same simple format. Each starts with a statement basically saying, I'm a something insignificant swept along by some elemental force. We have a cork on an ocean, a rock in a landslide and a leaf on a windy day. The cork is floating, the rock is rolling and the leaf is being blown around. I'm a leaf on a After that, a question is asked about the inevitability or infinite nature of this force. The question is then repeated. We have, how deep is the ocean? How deep is the valley? How long will the wind blow? And then Brian wraps up each verse with a simple statement about his current emotional state with a little hey, hey, hey. The final line of the second verse is particularly heavy. It kills my soul. It kills my soul. Bloody hell, no wonder Mike Love thought it was a bit of a downer. This song has no chorus, and after these three short verses, we get the coda, which lasts nearly a full minute to a fade out. Here, we have the whole band singing either these things I'll be until I die, or just until I die. Super effective, and it really goes to show that sometimes the best lyrics are the most straightforward. Now, I hardly need to explain to you what these lyrics mean. Brian saw himself at this time as an insignificant thing, swept along by forces far greater than himself. As far as he could see, that was always going to be the case. That's just who he was. I know how you feel. The whole system makes me feel... insignificant. Excellent. You've made a real breakthrough. I have? Yes, Z. You are insignificant. I, I am? Okay, so now that stuff's out of the way, time for my ultimate Beach Boys songwriting conspiracy theory. Are you guys ready for this? Take a look at this! Jesus Christ! Firstly, listen to this. You never give me your money. Now this. I'm a cork on the ocean. Now back at this. You never give me your money. Now look at me. Sadly, he isn't me. Now look back at the songs. You never give me your money. I'm a cork on the ocean. Many, many people have pointed out that the first bit of the melody to Till I Die bears more than a passing resemblance to the Beatles' You Never Give Me Your Money. And it does. I agree. Abbey Road, the Beatles album on which the song appears, had only just come out a few weeks before Brian started working on Till I Die. He was certainly a big fan of the song and of the Beatles generally, being particularly keen on Paul McCartney's songwriting. The Beach Boys even did an instrumental cover of You Never Give Me Your Money around this time, so it was clearly occupying quite a bit of Brian's brain space in 1969. Now, whether Brian definitely based Till I Die on this song is unclear, but Brian did definitely like to base songs on music he already loved. So listen to Girl Don't Tell Me. Girl don't tell me you ride. Girl don't tell me you Now, Ticket to Ride. She's got a ticket to ride. Listen to I Do, which he wrote for the Castells. Now listen to Be My Baby. And of course, Surfing USA and Chuck Berry's Sweet Little 16. 
Deep in the heart of Texas. There's even the previously unreleased song Where Is She, which clearly takes a lot of inspiration from the Beatles' She's Leaving Home. How do I feel knowing love is away? Leaving home after living alone. I'm sure a lot of people will feel like this is maybe cheating or ripping off or whatever, but it's not really. It's actually quite normal. In fact, it's the norm. It's what everyone does. For example, Beethoven based some of his compositions on Mozart. <laughs> Mozart based some of his on Clementi and other contemporaries. The Beatles based some of their songs on Chuck Berry and Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan based some of his on Chuck Berry, and Chuck Berry definitely based his songwriting on the people who came before him. So it's not weird or unusual that Brian would do the same. I do think though that Brian has had a noteworthy and unique approach to this sort of intertextuality, which I'll get back to in a bit. For now, let's just say that you never give me your money until I die seemed to share some melodic characteristics and that Brian was a certainly a big fan of the song and b keen on drawing on songs he loved as inspiration. We'll get back to the links with You Never Give Me Your Money at a later point. For now though, let's get back to Till I Die and talk about those tricky chord changes. So here is a chord chart for Till I Die. That's a whole bunch of chords. Quite a lot for a two and a half minute long pop song, but it's not super uncommon or weird, particularly for a Beach Boys song. What is weird though about these chords is that they don't really seem to fit a single key, certainly not through the verses. There's no obvious way to analyze them and I've not really come across any satisfactory explanation. The standard analysis of it is that it's in the key of C, centered around the key of C major, but it uses a lot of different um, kind of interchanges, different chords from the key of C major and C minor. But I actually disagree with that. So let's actually look at what's going on. Here you'll see the chords written out with the lyrics of the first verse. We start on A flat major seven and we go to B flat. That's not super weird, to be honest. This just sounds like a pretty standard flat seven to tonic movement, super common. You'll hear it all the time in pop, blues, jazz, folk, everything. On the next line though, we go straight up to a C chord. At this point, it kind of sounds like the song's done what a lot of people call the Super Mario Cadence, which is a flat six, flat seven to tonic movement, all major chords, and it's named so because of use in the Super Mario theme. But we immediately come back down to that B flat, and to me, that B flat sounds like the tonic. We sound at rest here, not on the C. Weird. Anyway, the next line we get C major 7 to F major 7, then we get to a B sus 4. This chord really sticks out, we'll talk about that in a sec. Then another C major 7, then an E minor add 9 to G major 7. So what the hell's going on here? As I said, most people seem to interpret this as being in the key of C, with a bunch of chord borrowed from C minor. I think that kind of makes sense, but I don't think it's right. Let's look again at those chords alongside the lyrics and let's just pay attention to the last chord of each line. We have B flat, B flat, F, C, and G. Wait a minute, I recognize that. That's just the circle of fifths going clockwise and it's all moving towards that final G major seven at the end of each verse. Now, there are a lot of chords that complicate it a bit, but we've all heard that basic chord progression before. Most famously, at least for guitar players and rock music fans, is Hey Joe by loads of artists, but most famously, Jimi Hendrix. The two songs start and end in different places and Hey Joe has one more step, but it does follow the same basic pattern. So Hey Joe goes C to G, 
D-A-E. Or we could say flat 6, flat 3, flat 7, 4 and 1, all in the key of E. And then till I die goes B flat twice, F, C, G. This is basically the flat 3 chord, flat 3 again, then the flat and 7th, the 4th and the 1, all in the key of G. Structurally, it's basically a bunch of 4 to 1 movements, just like Hey Joe. So I guess we could say that the verses are in G, probably more accurate though to say towards G. Okay, so I decided, oh shit buddy, I gotta dig a little deeper. The thing is, in a song like Hey Joe, we can actually just solo of all the changes in E minor pentatonic quite happily. We can add a bit of E mixolydian on the way, but we couldn't get away with such a simple scalar approach to Till I Die, because of all the other seemingly random chords along the way. So what's going on with them? Well, we could just take a Roman numeral analysis approach to them all, which is actually not all that helpful, at least not for the first couple of lines. We get a bit of a mess without really informing as much in my opinion. I mean, if we're in G, we have a flat 2 chord, flat 3 to 4, back to flat 3. Uh, it's not wrong, it's just not all that useful. I think, again, we can just look back to our circle of fifths. So we start here at A flat, which is as far away from our destination of G as possible, harmonically speaking. We jump to B flat, to C, back to B flat. That's a pretty clear pattern to me. It's just going back and forth along the circle of fifths, missing the odd step out. And if we just listen to the song, I think we can hear that the first two lines don't really take us anywhere. In spite of using a set of chords that don't really fit together in one key, and in spite of some big jumps around the circle of fifths, we just come back to B flat each time. To me, we really start to feel like we're moving on the third line with the C to F movement, a pretty clear five to one movement, or a one to four, which is basically the same thing. And then we get to that B sus4 chord, which is quite clearly a standout chord. That's mostly down to the fact that it clashes quite obviously with the B flat we've been hearing so far. And the fact that this song has a B and B flat so close to each other is what makes this progression so hard to understand. To me, what this chord does is set up quite clearly the G tonality of these last two lines. Up until now, we've moved towards chords, towards the B flat, towards the F, but not really in B flat or F. The other chords leading to them are mostly too weird for us to say that simply. From the B sus4 chord to the end of each verse, everything to me is quite comfortably in G. Although a suspended chord, this B feels like it's implicitly minor rather than major, making it the third chord in the key of G. The C is the fourth chord, then we have the relative minor built off of the sixth scale degree with E minor with an added ninth and then we wrap up on a G major 7. So it's all about those plagal 4 to 1 movements that we can see at the line ends then. Sure there are some weird bits in between going from C to B flat and insisting that we're still moving towards B is arguably a weird position to take but if you listen to that line it certainly sounds, at least to me, that the B flat is more home than C. That may simply be down to the harmonic rhythm of the line and because we end on that chord, but what can I say? That's what it sounds like. And that's at least partly what harmonic rhythm is meant to do. So what we get is this really cool, sort of highly abstracted circle of fifths progression that starts as far away from the end point as possible. And it sort of meanders back from A flat all the way to C. 
Then, at the start of each subsequent verse, we're back to that far-flung A-flat and we start making our way back again. This circle of fifths motion towards G theory of mine has the added benefit of also working with the coda too. This time, we're very clearly in G, although the chords remain a bit out there. G to B-flat to E-flat to D and back around. So if we think of these chords in terms of Roman numerals, we have the one chord, the flattened third, the flat six, and the five chord. Basically then, lots of borrowing from the parallel G minor, but taking us back still to G major. Now, I know it's basically the same thing, but I actually prefer to think of it the other way around. Rather than being in G major with chords borrowed from G minor, kind of makes more sense to me to say that we're in G minor, but we just happen to return back to a major chord instead. It gives a sort of tonally ambiguous feel, which is very appropriate to the existentialism in the lyrics. And if you listen to Mike's bass vocals throughout this section, he's really just outlining a partial G minor scale, so I'm going to go ahead and count that as evidence for my wacky. It's actually in G minor, we just happen to end on G major idea. Even here, it's all about the circle of fifths. This time though, it's about anti-clockwise motion. We start on G major, but then the B flat comes from G minor, and this is the fifth of the next chord, E flat, also from G minor. E-flat works really nicely as a predominant chord that is used in loads of blues and rock music as such. And in Till I Die, it does exactly that, leading us nicely to the D7, which is, of course, the fifth chord of G. Basically, then, this song plays fast and loose with key centers. It's less about being in one key and more about the chords taking us in directions. First, through a bunch of abstracted 4-to-1 movements, then we get a bit of 5-to-1 in the coda. Just like the lyrics are about feeling unmoored and helpless in the face of life's primal vicissitudes with an almost paradoxical sense of inevitability and certainty, the verse chords sort of meander back and forth but with no obvious sense of direction or conviction, while still moving according to a deeper harmonic substructure that takes us irresistibly towards G. The verses work via those abstracted plagal movements and the coda gives us a much clearer harmonic movement through those dominant resolutions, but still with that weird sense of tonal ambiguity thanks to the mixing of chords from G major and chords from G minor. Now, Brian himself claimed that he wrote these chords by just putting his fingers in random positions and was thinking as much about how the chords looked as what they sounded like. Brian was also known to talk crap. I don't say that to be mean or dismissive, just to say that it might be one of Brian's famous weird jokes. Brian? Brian? Brian, where are you? I'm in the piano. Come out of there, man! The point is, we may never really know what he was thinking about when he wrote these chords, but my way of analysing the progression does make sense of it, whatever the conscious intentions. Brian loves to take us through these circuitous harmonic movements through his songs. Take This Whole World from Sunflower, for example. This song is even shorter than Till I Die at a mere 1 minute and 57 seconds, and it takes us through several related key centres at breakneck speed, all the while sounding completely smooth and natural. Anyway, we've still got a bit more to talk about. I'm not quite finished yet. You've lost your mind. You've lost your goddamn mind. I said we'd come back to You Never Give Me Your Money, and here we are. I am personally convinced, for the reasons that I talked about before, that this Beatles song did, in fact, play a part in Brian's composition of Till I Die. And I think that it's no coincidence that it, too, is based primarily on the circle of fifths. Now don't start that again. A minus seven to D minus seven, G, 
C, F. It's the diatonic circle of fifths. So what it is, is the sixth chord, the second chord, fifth, first, and fourth. So whereas Till I Die mostly goes clockwise along the circle of fifths, You Never Give Me Your Money goes anti-clockwise. It also doesn't have those pesky weird chords in between confusing us. It makes a lot more obvious and immediate sense, even on first listen. It's hard to imagine then that Brian wasn't thinking of You Never Give Me Your Money, at least in some way, while writing this song. The melodic similarities, the circle of fifths chord progressions, the fact that we know he loved the Beatles song and even recorded a demo around the same time he was working on Till I Die. It all adds up. Can I get a paper trail to prove it? The thing is though, Paul McCartney's song, for all its brilliance, feels sort of light, whimsical, almost trivial compared to Till I Die. That's not to say it's worse, but different. Ah, heck, who am I kidding? I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Brian's song. And that's probably largely down to the lyrics. You Never Give Me Your Money has lyrics that work, but I don't think they're fantastic. For all of the harmonic and melodic similarities between the two songs, they just don't share anything in common lyrically. But guess what? I'm still not finished. Okay, so I decided, oh shit, buddy, I gotta dig a little deeper. There's no Pepe Sylvia, you gotta be kidding me, I got boxes full of Pepe! A song that we could, and I think should, happily compare to Till I Die from a lyrical point of view is Irving Berlin's How Deep Is The Ocean. How deep is the ocean? How high is the sky? So this is where I go full conspiracy theory. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, at this point, I do have to sort of wonder, am I connecting too many dots? The Beatles link has been made by loads of people. The melodic similarity is sort of obvious and Brian's love of Paul songwriting is well known, but uh, let, let's just get on with it. So firstly, I mean, come on, the lyrics bear more than a passing resemblance, right? Till I Die literally asks in the third line of the song and then again in the fourth line, how deep is the ocean? The Beach Boys say the title of the Irving Berlin song twice. Is it fair then for me to assume that Brian had this song in mind while writing this song? Mm, I don't know. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that necessarily. I just think that the links are there whether Brian was conscious of it or not. Let's look a little bit closer. So whereas Till I Die is sort of pure, unadulterated existentialism, how deep is the ocean is, well, not. It's light, it's whimsical, it's kind of cutesy. But the question, how deep is the ocean, is used in a similar way, rhetorically speaking, in each song, if to rather different artistic or emotional ends. When Irving Berlin asks the question, he's basically saying, I love you a lot. I love you so much, you can't even begin to quantify it. The song includes a few other questions used in much the same manner. How often do I think of you? Well, how many roses are sprinkled with dew? How far would I travel to be with you? Well, how far is the journey from here to the sky? You get the point, right? For Brian, though, his questions are more about the inevitability of his inadequacy, the infinite depth and power of the elements. He's saying, I'm an insignificant object born along by these primal forces of the sea, land, and air. I am forever destined to live this way. I cannot fathom the depths of the sea that I float upon, nor the valley that I fall into. The wind that bears me aloft may blow forever and I have no control over it. In each song then, the questions are about something unquantifiable, immeasurable, infinite and sublime. But Irving Berlin was writing about love and Brian about existential despair. How deep is the ocean, huh? 
I also like how both songs touch upon the land, sea and air in their rhetorical questions. It is of course natural to do that when trying to get across the immensity of something. So again, it might not even be a conscious connection on Brian's part, but it's still a connection. And I have one final link to make. Oh shit buddy, I gotta dig a little deeper. And it's back to the circle of fifths. That's right. How deep is the ocean is another circle of fifths chord progression. Ah, right. At this point, I think I might be connecting dots that don't really need connecting. You've lost your mind. After all, the circle of fifths is so central to so much of Western music, particularly the kind of jazz standards that Irving Berlin wrote, that most songs can be understood as working within that framework, whether they're all directly linked or not. To some degree, this is just how most Western music works. The harmonic connection is there if you want to make it but it may be a step too far even for me. Let's just leave it on the table. All of this was for nothing. God damn it, dude, I'm having a panic attack. I'm actually having a panic attack. Oh, will you attack. settle down and have another cup of coffee? Lyrically though, I definitely think there are some strong links here. Brian certainly will have known the Irving Berlin song and it had already been recorded by loads of artists, including one of his favorites, Frank Sinatra. And I definitely think that the melody in the Circle of Fifths connection with You Never Give Me Your Money is a legitimate connection. Ultimately, these connections are all about intertextuality. This is the relationship between texts or pieces of art. Basically the way that any piece of art can be shaped by the meaning of another one. This can mean quoting, parodying, translating, pastiching, or even just wholesale ripping off another piece of art. It could go deeper than that to story arcs or character archetypes used across literary works or chord progressions and lyrics shared across artists and genres. And it's all completely normal. Everyone does it. It's just how art works. Interestingly, How Deep Is The Ocean is an example of Irving Berlin doing this with his own music. He reused some of the lyrics from his earlier song, To My Mummy, as the basis of this later song. That's right, the line, How Deep Is The Ocean, How High Is The Sky, was recycled by Berlin. So, if I'm right in thinking that it could have inspired Brian Wilson when writing Till I Die, that makes it re-recycled. Upcycled, maybe. Brian Wilson, you hipster. So look, the point is, it's allowed. It's not stealing, it's intertextuality. So again, this intertextuality, not stealing, intertextuality is definitely a big Brian Wilson thing. So it just makes sense for me to make these links with Till I Die. Brian Wilson and intertextuality could actually form the basis of an entire episode or even a series of episodes all to itself. I'm not sure if there's been a mainstream pop musician who's done it to the same extent as Brian. Not just those examples I listed earlier where he looks to other songs for inspiration material, but the way that he will reuse and alter his own themes for use elsewhere. It's kind of mind-boggling thinking about all the connections between his songs, even decades apart. Maybe that'll be a future episode. Maybe. Anyway, whew, what a trip we've been on. This is the worst trip. And all about a 2 minute 33 second long song. Till I Die is, as I'm sure I've said many times, one of my favourite songs ever. It may be short, but it always seemed to me to have a whole world contained within it. It exists in its own idiosyncratic sort of psychological, harmonic and cultural space. One potentially... You've lost your mind. You've lost your goddamn mind! Potentially built through direct engagement with both You Never Give Me Your Money and How Deep Is The Ocean. At the end of it all, putting aside all the theory talk about the chords, putting aside the intertextuality and links with other songs, when listening to Till I Die, I'm really just left with the simple question. Is this the Beach Boys' most depressing song? Or is there actually something positive in it? Is that coda, these things I'll be until I die? Does it sing of resignation or acceptance?
If you talk to Beach Boys fans, they're split. Some people think it's beautiful but depressing, others think it's depressing but beautiful. Now, maybe those are kind of the same thing, but I think there's an important distinction. Personally, I'm inclined to say it's the latter. Sure, it speaks to profound existential dread. Sure, the progression is tricky and weird and it doesn't really make sense at first. But all the same, throughout the entire song, it all moves quite clearly towards the tonality of G major, throughout the verses and even the coda. Even at the end, when we have a much more minor key progression, the movement takes us towards that G major. There seems to be something optimistic then in the closing moments, and it's why I'm inclined to resist the temptation to just say it's depressing. I don't find it depressing, and I never have, even though it was clearly written by someone who was incredibly depressed and very ill. Ultimately, it's just a really good song. So, if you sat through this entire video, you clearly enjoyed my rambling. So, come on. Come on. Subscribe. You know, go on. Just click that button. It's easy. Come on. Subscribe. Go on. Hit that button. You know Hit you want button. to.